Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you would be, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts, the second chapter in the Bibles that are in your pews there, that'll be on page 966. And many of the texts that we will read out of Acts will not be on the screen because you got your Bible there. Let's read along in those. And then some of the other passages in the Old Testament, we will have those available. But we'll look forward to this time of studying God's Word together. It is wonderful to be a part of a family where literally the request is over and over, what can we do? What are we doing about helping those among our membership that are hurting because of uh, the financial stress in our economy right now? It's wonderful to be a part of a congregation that has that kind of generosity and that kind of heart. It is kind of a tough time to ask people to give, but as we've said before, it's never a bad time to ask God's people to be generous. That is the makeup of God's people, is is that of saying we are willing to sacrifice. That's why we became Christians, was because we were willing to sacrifice for a greater good and for a cause that's greater than ourselves. And let's be prayerful and let's consider what we can do and keep in mind there will be envelopes for those that say, hey, I can't give as much this coming Sunday as I want to give over the next few weeks and months. And those envelopes will be available if you want to continue uh, to do that over the next few weeks and months. But be prayerful and be considerate of what you can do in that area. Do keep in mind the Bibles to pick those up. We only have a few left tonight, but we need to get an idea of how many do we need. Uh, we would like for the, what we order after tonight to kind of be our last order. And so if, if you do want one, be sure and let that be known tonight. We want everybody that wants one to be able to uh, receive one of those. But just keep in mind, uh, we'll probably start wrapping that up this week. So now would be a good time to let us know if you haven't been able to do that so far, but you do plan on doing that. When we consider the sermon that Peter preached in Acts, the second chapter, we see a sermon that had a tremendous success. It was a success in the number of souls that it reached, but it also was a tremendous success in the way that it turned lives a complete 180. Individuals that just before had been yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, were now ready to say, I want him to reign in my life. What a change. And not only that, but it was a sermon that really set, if you will, the precedent for what the sermon should be for now almost 2,000 years. This morning we looked at how important it is to notice in that sermon the fact that it was a very Bible-based sermon. We see that almost half of that sermon was scripture that they had that we today call the Old Testament, which would have been the only scripture that they had in that time. We see also most definitely that it was a Christ-focused message. Peter did not uh, rely upon all of his past experiences. He did not rely upon what he was feeling, even though I assure you what he was feeling at the moment he had never felt before. He did not rely upon the idea of simply stirring them because of their experience. Think how easy it would have been to just make the whole sermon. Do you realize what you did? You crucified the Messiah. But instead, he continued to go back to the Bible and say, let's consider what God says about this. Let's see how Christ ties into all this. And then in that, the close was very plain and very loud, which we will close tonight with that same plea out of the psalmist, and that is that Christ is reigning. And we will close tonight by asking the question, is Christ reigning in your life? But we want to come back tonight, and we want to look at some of the 
more detailed aspects of this day and of the sermon because as we see some of it on a deeper level, we know surely that there are even more lessons that we can learn. If you have your Bible open, look at Acts the second chapter and verse 1 and we see when this was taking place. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Do you remember back in Acts the first chapter? They were told to tarry, as you read in verse 3, 4, and 5. They were told to tarry there until the promise would come of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were waiting for that occasion. It's interesting simply to note on a timeline the time frame and how the day of Pentecost comes into play. There were three festivals. There were three what we would think of as holy days or holidays that the Jews observed given by God where many of them would travel back to Jerusalem. Two of those was Passover. Remember that was the week that Jesus was crucified. And then the next was the Pentecost. Pentecost would take place seven Sabbath days after the Sabbath of the Passover plus a day. Now, why is that important? That's important because if we go seven Sabbaths, that'd be 49 days, and you add one more, that makes 50 days. But what that lets us know is the beginning of the church was on a Sunday morning. Isn't it interesting that the first time that we read of him standing up and preaching, it was Sunday at 9 o'clock. That just sounds, sounds kind of traditional, doesn't it? And so we have, the, we have the beginning of the church. Peter standing up and saying, hey, they, they can't be drunk with the wine like you thought. It's Sunday at 9 o'clock in the morning. And so that was the beginning of the church. Keep in mind, under the old law, the great emphasis of the holy day, if you will, is, was placed on the Sabbath. And now we come to the new covenant and we see that Christ was resurrected, not on the Sabbath. He was resurrected on Sunday morning. We see the beginning of the church, not on the Sabbath. We see it on Sunday morning. We see the church at Troas partaking of the Lord's Supper, not on the Sabbath. They were taking on a Sunday, the first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. And we see the command to give in 1 Corinthians 16, chapter verse 1 and 2, again on Sunday. And so we see that Sunday became the Lord's day. Now, we won't go into depth here, but the idea of keeping it holy in the same way that the Sabbath was holy was never carried over into the new covenant. It definitely was a day that we are to worship God. It's the day that God set aside for us to make sure that we gather to do that. But the day as a whole, all day long being holy, as if the Sabbath was in the Old Testament, that simply doesn't carry over. Now, you remember that as we read in 2, 3, and 4 of Acts, the second chapter, we see this, see there in verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I want you to imagine, if you will, maybe the last time you've been sitting in a house and you heard just, just a horrific wind blow through and you thought to yourself, that really had to do some damage to the roof or, or that really had to do some damage to some trees and, and maybe you rushed outside and you looked to see the damage that this wind had done. When the Holy Spirit was poured down upon the apostles, there was a mighty rushing wind and as we read uh, the rest and in verse 3 we see that then appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and set upon each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we say, what, 
did this look like, the, the other tongues? As I mentioned this morning, it was in verse 6 that this sound of the rushing wind caused the multitude to come closer to the apostles. But what kept them standing there and listening was that they were hearing their language, even though they observed these are Galileans. You see that at the end of verse 7? We're looking at Galileans, but yet each one is speaking in the native tongue of the land that, that where we were born. And so they're staying, they're trying to figure out how is this taking place. Let's put this thought on hold for just a moment to develop something that usually generates a lot of questions. And I know in this short amount of time, and the truth is I don't even have the knowledge to answer all of your questions about the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I do think we would be wise to point out two or three things here in just a bullet type situation. We see at least three, and really we could go to four, but for tonight's lesson, we see at least three measures of the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon individuals. Keep in mind, when we read back in Acts the first chapter just a few moments ago, and if you have your Bible open, flip back on your pew Bible, it's 965. I want you to notice that they were never commanded to be baptized into the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this again. Look in verse 4. They're told to wait for the promise of the Father. And then we see in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When we read about the baptism into Christ, you and I are commanded to be baptized into Christ. The apostles were not commanded to be baptized into the Holy Spirit. It was a promise. In other words, Jesus told them, If you wait in Jerusalem... You tarry here, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is coming upon you. In other words, he's saying, I promise you by the Father, it will come upon you. So this was not an act that these people went out and willingly obeyed in the sense of, I need to be immersed into water. This was something that they received. And when that happened, we see here in Acts the second chapter, there were mighty miracles that followed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one other time that we see the pouring or the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon individuals. Now, please note that this was something tremendous. This was the beginning of the new dispensation of time. If you want to put your eyes on that, look down in, in the Acts of second chapter and you see in verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, if your Bible's like mine, it goes ahead and it sets all of verse 17 into quotes there. But if you go back and look at Joel, that first phrase or two is not in Joel. In other words, Peter added this, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Then the rest is what we read in Joel. What's the point here? Peter is saying to the crowd, you're wondering about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've heard it like a mighty rushing wind. You saw it come upon us. You saw the tongues of fire. You saw and heard us speak in tongues that you could understand. And you're saying, what is this? Let me tell you, one of the things that you're seeing is not simply the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you're seeing that this is the dawning of the last dispensation of time. See again there at the beginning of 17? It should come to pass in the last days. What you're seeing is... Think of a timeline here. You're not seeing the Mosaic Age. That was, that was uh, let me back up. You're not seeing the Patriarchal Age. That was fulfilled by the time we see Mount Sinai, at least for Israel. You're not seeing the Mosaic Age right here. That, that came to an end at the cross. 
What are you seeing here? You're seeing the beginning of the last days. And today we call that the Christian dispensation. And so here not only do we have the beginning of the church, but we have the beginning of the last days where God spoke through the new covenant. And so we have the beginning of the authority of the New Testament here. Mark the fact that when something major happened here, a part of its identification was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now flip over in your Bible to Acts the 10th chapter. Uh, many of you already know where we're going here. You know this, this, but if you don't, this is something very important because a lot of questions are given answers that really are wrong. There's just a lot of confusion about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only two groups of people that we ever see receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see the apostles receive it the day the church began, and then we went several years before the Gentiles were openly accepted into the church. And you remember in Acts the 10th chapter, Peter receives this vision, and he's somewhat surprised at what this vision is asking him to do. I want you to go to Cornelius, and, and he's a Gentile. And I want you to go into his house and I want you to preach Christianity to him. And Peter, this is just boggling his mind. Does God really want us Jews mixing and mingling with the Gentiles? Surely he doesn't want us to be one church. And finally, you know what just is just like the final straw where Peter says, Okay, I, I've got to accept these Gentiles. Let's go down to the very bottom of, of Acts the 10th chapter. Uh, let's begin in verse 44. Acts the 10th chapter 44. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. Now keep in mind, at this point, the scripture is not teaching us that these individuals were saved before they were baptized. The outpour of the Holy Spirit at this time is simply to compare what happened in Acts 2, the beginning of the church for the Jews, to now show Peter and the other Jews there that this is the beginning for the Gentiles to be welcomed into the church family. Let's continue reading here. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter. So see, not only Peter, but other Jews were astonished. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them. See, now it's a command. You see, they weren't commanded receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was a promise that came to the apostles. That was a promise that came to Cornelius and his household. But now notice the command. And commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked them to stay a few days. That baptism of the Holy Spirit was to show the work of God in beginning something new in their life. Now, that's one measure of the Holy Spirit. Acts the second chapter in 38, when he told them to be baptized, he would said that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a measure of the Holy Spirit that we oftentimes describe simply as it's not a miraculous measure. In other words, when you and I are baptized into Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we don't come out of the waters able to heal people, uh, able to make the lame walk. We don't have miraculous powers out of that. There is a third measure of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to back up a page or two in your Bible to Acts the 8th chapter, we see that when Philip went into Samaria, Acts the 8th chapter... 
Philip went into Samaria in verse 5 and began preaching Christ. And the result was that many of them, in verse 12, many of them were baptized, men and women, into Jesus Christ. But now notice what happened in 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God... They sent Peter and John. Why? They were apostles. Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And as of yet, it had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they, talking about the two apostles, Peter and John, they laid them, their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening here? They would have received the gift of the Holy Spirit whenever they were baptized into Christ, but they did not have the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to note that Philip could not give that to them. If you read back earlier in this same chapter, Philip could perform miracles. Isn't that interesting? He could perform miracles. He had a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, but he could not lay hands on others to transfer that gift, but the apostles could. So we see three measures of the Holy Spirit. We see the baptism of the Holy Spirit that came upon the apostles. We see the Holy Spirit that we receive in our baptism. But then we see a measure of the Holy Spirit where the apostles could lay hands on individuals. They could transfer miraculous gifts, but we never see those individuals being able to lay hands on someone else and transfer that gift. And so therefore, after the death of the apostles and those that they laid their hands upon, we have no reason to believe that the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit would have continued beyond that. So we go back to Acts, the second chapter. And as we look at Acts, the second chapter, we see that promise of the Holy Spirit that was going to be sent to them because Jesus had ascended. He's reigning up on high, but they're not going to be left alone. He'll send a power in their life, and that's the power of the Spirit. Now, as we pointed out this morning, at 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13, when, when individuals saw this, they were perplexed. Where, where did this come, kind of power come from? What does this mean? Maybe they're drunk. And so Peter stands up, and what I would like to challenge all of us teachers, uh, preachers, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, anybody that has influence in the lives of others that they're teaching, I'd like for you to think about the two-part plea that Peter makes at the beginning of this sermon. Look, if you will, at verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, here it is, part number one, let this be known to you, part number two, and heed my words. What is it that we're really trying to accomplish when we're teaching? When, when you go into a Bible class, teacher... What are you trying to accomplish? When you sit down, and, and as Phil urges us to do so often, and, and let's do this, we sit down, and, and we need to sit down with our family, and we're going to have a devotional. What is it that we want to accomplish? Do you realize Peter's simple plea is, now he's about to teach them God's Word. We developed that this morning. And so his plea is, I want you to know this. And number two, I want you to heed my words. And the word, in the, even in the original language here for heed, my words means to listen carefully. Now, by the way, the word obedience, the root of it means to listen carefully also. In other words, you can't obey something that you haven't listened to. And so really, in the root, if we were going to trace these words back to their roots, what he is literally saying here is, I'm about to give you the word of God I'm begging you, know God's Word. 
Number two, I'm begging you to know God's word with an ear that says, I want to listen to it so I can obey it. Sometime on Sunday nights, I'll say to Tracy, man, I really bombed today. Tonight, I really blew it. And and a lot of the time, what I'm referring to in that is I feel like I missed an application. I feel like that, that it just, it, it, the illustration or bringing it down to 2009, I feel like I missed it. And that frustrates me. But I want to tell you something that I can't live with. If I sit down from a sermon or sit down from teaching God's Word, And I feel like the class or the audience did not learn anything from God's Word. I'm going to be finished as a preacher. I'm going to be finished as a teacher. Friends, we don't have anything more important to say than to say to our children, to say to our audience, to say to our class, I'm begging you, know this Word. That's how Peter began his sermon. He knew that he was about to quote Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage, but he begins it by saying, I want you to know this Word. If we don't teach our children the Word of God, we've lost it. we failed. Our children cannot survive spiritually without knowing the Word of God. If we look at ourselves as a Bible class teacher and say, what's success? We know one thing's for success. If class is dismissed and we have not learned the Word of God, we know we failed. Now, yes, taking that over to application, it's so important. But we have to start with the Word of God and then say, are you listening? Are you listening to the Word of God so you can figure out how to apply it to your life so that you can be obedient to it? Well, what is it that Peter wanted to make sure that they heard so that they could apply. Remember, what they were having confusion about was what what was this wind? What's those tongues of fire? What, What is this speaking in tongues that you're able to do? We're confused about all of this. So in other words, Peter is saying, I want you to know what Joel said. And I want you to listen to see how it applies to today. If you have your Bible open, if not, you can just stay, uh, or you can look uh, in the Pew Bible there in Acts 2, or if you want to drop back to Joel, we're going to be doing both because he quotes both of them. But if you have your Bible open and want to drop back to the book of Joel, what's interesting to me is this short little book really has a, a really powerful message, and it's one of those messages that if you and I lived during this time, we would never forget it. Because the first chapter of the book of Joel teaches us that there had been a plague of locusts, that the earth had been darkened by a plague of locusts. Now, I want you to try to imagine this, okay? I think it's passages like this that come to life if we really see what the Word of God is teaching us. I want you to imagine that if it was daylight outside right now, and and I want you to imagine that you're looking off in the distance and you see a darkness approaching. The locusts are so thick that as they approach, they completely darken, shading the sunlight so that everything below them becomes dark. And I want you to imagine that just like if the lights went out here, we were outside in the daylight, and all of a sudden, it is pitch dark. And I want you to imagine the sound that that would be of locusts that were that thick. 
And I want you to imagine the sound of locusts eating. And I want you to imagine how it would be to have them all around you and not be able to see. Scrambling for some kind of light. Scrambling to find your family that was standing next to you when they flew in. And finally, what might seem like an eternity, they finally flutter on and the darkness goes. Except now, you're looking at an earth that has been totally eaten of anything that's green. All the leaves are off the tree. All the grass is is gone. You're looking at a barren land. The crops that you were going to use to get your family through the winter, those crops are eaten up. That's what Joel was experiencing as he was addressing Judah. That had happened to them. And Joel is saying that's symbolic of the sin and the darkness that God is going to bring upon us because of the darkness of our sin. And what he does in in chapter 2 is he pleads to say, let's have a refreshing in the land. The locusts had eaten it down. Let's have a renewal in the land. Let's build back something. But of course, Judah's not going to do it. We know the, the, the story of the history as it lived out. We see that, that they're totally going to be destroyed as a nation, but remember, there's a remnant that's going to dwell, and it's going to be that new kingdom. It's going to be the church that's built back. God's people are not going to totally be destroyed. Acts, the second chapter, is going to take place. Joel is literally prophesying that that greatest renewal, that greatest refreshing is going to take place. And we see that being mentioned in Acts, the second chapter. When you go to uh, Joel, the second chapter in 28, Notice he says, and it shall come to pass afterward. Now, remember Peter said in the last days, and, and then he says that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You see, that's what he was talking about. This, what you see here of the Spirit being poured out, it's what Joel said was going to happen. And for time's sake, we just, we just do not have time to work through each one of those things that were fulfilled during that time. But notice when we come to verse 32, that was the transition. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter used that part right there to kind of stop quoting Joel and say, let me use this as a transition. And I want to show you this, and we'll start wrapping this lesson up. If you'll go back to Acts, the second chapter, notice the, the uh, it, it was really, uh, of course, brilliant. Uh, the Holy Spirit's working through Peter. We wouldn't expect less than brilliance. Now, keep in mind, these are people that did not at this point believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They crucified him. They had no problem with that. But they did believe in God. They did believe in the Old Testament Scripture. And so he quotes a lot from the Old Testament Scripture But notice how he is going to esteem Christ by leaning upon the authority of God. So they said, hey, we don't understand what's happening this day. He says, let me take the book of Joel that you love and trust and I'll show you what's happening this day. And by the way, we're going to close this quote by saying whoever calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, I'm going to use this as a transition in this sermon and I'm going to teach you who the Lord is that you need to call on to be saved. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible, you're going to see in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. You see, he's kind of bringing the audience back together because he's about to take something that's going to take the wind out of them. He's about to tell them something that's going to be like a dagger into the heart. At this point, they probably still have no idea that the Jesus they crucified was the Messiah. And he's about to 
reveal that in this lesson. And you can imagine what these people must have felt like at the time he gets to this point in the lesson. But notice he's going to do it from the authority of God, not from the authority of Jesus or not from the authority of experience. It's going to be all about God. Look in 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, here it is, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Pause there for a moment. If I were going to attest to you right now about a product, you would expect me to have used that product. That's, that's what we mean by test. It's to show something by proof. And so if I'm going to tell you about how great this product is, you would have expected me to use that product in my life. Here is God saying, I'm going to attest to you Jews, Jesus. In other words, God saying, I'm going to bring Jesus before you and I'm going to prove him to you. I'm going to let Jesus work miracles that only God could work. I'm going to let him do wonders Mighty signs. I'm going to let him do signs. And of course, signs are those mighty works that point to God. And then, okay, God, where are you going to do these things? In the middle of 22, he said, which God did through him in your midst. You see, they can't say, well, I tell you what, if, if God would have just had Jesus do that right in front of us, we would have never had this confusion. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, God's saying, I attested Jesus before you. As a matter of fact, he said, I did it right in your midst. God is saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. As a matter of fact, it was predetermined as we go into 23 in purpose and foreknowledge even before, it doesn't say here, but even before the foundations of the world, and notice though he says what they did. You have taken by your lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, but God has raised up, having, notice this, this language here has a bit of poetry to it, having loosed the pains of death because it's not possible that he should be held by it. We won't turn to it, but if you're taking notes, you might want to write down there Psalm 18 and verse 5 and Psalms 116 and verse 3. Both of those are times that the psalmist uses in poetry to talk about how death is like a cord or like a rope that binds us up and it creates pains of death. In other words, we, we can't get out of it. It's death holding us, and, and we want to be free of it, and we can't. And so the psalmist writes here, and he says... God showed you that he was the Messiah. You crucified him, but death, the cords of death, could not hold him. God brought him back. And so it's from there that he uses Psalm, 1, or Psalm 16, verse 8 and 11 to say, David, he spoke of one that would go to the grave, but his body would not find corruption in 29, it can't be David because you know where his grave is and his body has found corruption. So in 31, it has to be Jesus that's been resurrected and his soul has not been in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so now this places Jesus, as we go into 33 and 34, it places Jesus on the right-hand side of the Father and he says, the Lord, and by the way, in the original language, the first Lord 
is actually the word for Jehovah. We're in 34 now. We're quoting Psalm 110 and verse 1. So if we look back at the Hebrew of the original language, the first Lord is Jehovah said to my Lord, and the Hebrew word there simply means one who's greater than the individual that's saying it. This is David, the prophet, or the king, David, and he's prophesying. This is David saying this, and he's saying, the Lord Jehovah is the Lord over and then the one, the other Lord, is the one that's greater than me. That's Jesus Christ, David is saying. He's going to sit at the right hand and notice what he's going to do. Till I make your enemies your footstools. He's going to reign. And as we mentioned this morning, think of the blow that that was to those people, but you have to admire their humility. Isn't it awesome that these individuals that had done such a horrific act on earth of crucifying Jesus, they were willing to listen to the Scripture. They were willing to listen to what God did through Christ. And they're willing to say, now as we read verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they wanted to know what to do to be saved. Friends, tonight, I want to ask you, We know that Jesus Christ is reigning on the right hand of the Father. We know He is. He conquered the grave. The cords of death could not hold Him. He is alive. But here's what I need to know before I leave this place tonight. I need to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that He is reigning in my life. That He is the Lord of my life. That I have been willing to come and to lay everything at His feet. I've been willing to put up the white flag and say, God, I surrender all. God, I give you all of my health. I give you all of my life. God, I give you all of my relationships. God, I give you my job. I give you my family. God, I lay everything at your feet. I surrender it all to you. I have to tell you that Most of the time, matter of fact, I can't remember an exception to this. I have studied the scriptures about the Jews having Jesus crucified and I've never had a positive thought about them. It really is mind-boggling to me that they could do that. But when I study this week this sermon more carefully, I have a new appreciation for those Jews. To be able 50 days ago, 53 days ago, to crucify Jesus. And now, now they're willing to make that turn in their life. And they're willing now to say, you know what? I was wrong. And my heart bleeds over the fact that I was wrong. And the very man that I crucified, I'm ready now publicly and openly to say he's my God and he reigns on high. 